As we gather here today, we have great news to share. Jesus Christ is risen. We beat it in the Word. We have a holiday to celebrate it. I ask you this morning, how personal is this to you? When you think of Christ rising again, have we turned it into a ritual of sorts, a schedule, a holiday? We have certain things we must do. We have a plan in your bulletin, which I hope is clear enough to follow this morning. we got a lot going on. We find holidays to be busy times, but joyful times. Family comes over, meals to eat, all these wonderful things. But what's more wonderful than having a Savior? That He has forgiven my sin. That He died for me. This is personal. When I stop and think it through, it was in 1976 when I realized that Jesus just didn't die, but He died for me. That's the first time I understood it was personal. It was for me. It was for me. What a difference that makes when you understand those two extra words. For me. This morning we're going to spend time looking at the great news that's written up in Scripture about the resurrection morning and all that took place there. We're not just studying a historical event. We're studying a historical event that has personal application, and I hope it does to every single one of you in this room today. Join me in Psalm 22. We have been in Psalm 22. If you were here for Good Friday, just a couple days ago, we were in Psalm 22. If you have been here for any of our communion services over the last year, you've been in Psalm 22. Uh, It is a psalm of the crucifixion of Christ. And you say, well... But this is Easter morning. This is Resurrection Day. Why are we in Psalm 22? Because it's in there too. And I want you to see it with me today. Verse number 22. Psalm 22, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Heavenly Father, we are here to praise you, to tell of the great things that have been done for us. We are so unworthy, as we just sang. We, we don't know why at times when we look at ourselves and say, why would you love us? Why would you send your son? Why would he suffer on our behalf? Why would he die for me? Why would he rise again? Why would he care Why would He draw me to Himself? Why would He give me eternal life? It's incredible, Your mercy, Your grace, Your kindness toward us. When we study a passage like this, we have something to tell. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be warm this morning, just like those disciples on the way to Emmaus, when we look at Scripture and see what it has said about the great news. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. How many times have we gone through the resurrection morning account in Scripture? There are four Gospels. Each one of them records the resurrection of Christ. 
Usually it's the last chapter, except John, it's chapter 20, and there's 21 chapters there. This morning I read through all four of those. And I'm still amazed every time I read it, uh, uh, when I, I read of all these things. Do you know here in this church, the resurrection of Christ has been preached for 128 years. Isn't that exciting? This gospel has been preached for nearly 2,000 years. That Jesus Christ is risen. And yet, I hope we never get tired of it. I don't know how we could. But I do know this. And maybe you're like me. I don't know. But every time I read the gospel story of the resurrection, and I see the disciples, and then I see the ladies, and all this running back and forth to the tomb, and hearing that Jesus is alive, and I haven't seen him and all that, I smile all the way through it. Because it's like I have a secret. <laughs> you guys don't know. But as you're reading the account, you're, you're, you're surprised at their surprise. Are you not? You're surprised. Like I was mentioning just a few minutes ago in the prayer, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You'll find this account in Luke chapter 24. If you want to keep your bookmark here, we will come back to Psalm 22. But let's look at a couple of gospel accounts here. They're just delightful. Psalm 24, verse 13. No, did I say Psalm? Never mind. Luke 24. I'm thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't look right. Even I got deceived of that one. Luke 24, 13. Yeah, if you found the amazed disciples in Psalm 24, you've done pretty good. <laughs> Luke 24, 13. And behold, two of them, it says. Now, we find out later one of them is named Cleopas. We don't know who the other one is. But two of them, and apparently they were mingling in with the disciples, and they were in the upper room with them, and they were participating in the events of that day. And they... They gave up and they were heading home. And it says, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all these things which had taken place. Now they were there when Mary burst into the room. They had heard the reports that Jesus was alive. And now they're talking as they go. And they were talking and discussing and in verse 20, or verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still. I just, this is very dramatic, isn't it? They just stopped. And they looked sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem? And you're unaware of the things which have happened in these days? And Jesus, he said to them, What things? You can almost see that smile, can't you? What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, 
and how the chief priests and our rulers, I, I think there was probably an emphasis on that word, our, our rulers delivered him to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also, some women came in among us, amazed us, when we were at the tomb early, or when they were at the tomb earlier this morning, they did not find his body. And they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Isn't it interesting? They were still sad, weren't they? Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said to them, but they did not see him. And Jesus stopped them right there in their tracks. He says, O foolish man, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that sermon? Starts in Genesis and starts working his way, speaking what does Scripture say about me. Now, you're still in Luke. Back up to verse 1. Back up to verse 1. Let's set the scene for this, because this is, this is really beautiful. They were slow in heart, Jesus said, to believe. Slow in heart to believe. It says in verse 1, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing spices, which they had prepared. We're talking about the ladies here. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. And they returned from the tomb and they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now there was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women who were with them telling these things to the apostles. Look at verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not. You hear the words? They would not believe them. They would not. If you go over to Mark's record... Just a couple of verses I'll read to you here. It's Mark 16, verse 9, 10, and 11. Listen to these words. Now, after he had risen on the first day of the week, his first appearance to Mary Magdalene, whom he had cast out seven demons, she went and reported these things to, to those who had been with him while they were mourning and they were weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Aren't those powerful words? They refused to believe it. In John chapter 20, 
There's a handful of verses from 11 to 15. Let me read those to you. Mary was standing outside the tomb, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She expected him to still be dead. And when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She expected him to be dead. So did Thomas. You know Thomas' story in John chapter 20. Poor Thomas. It's recorded and everybody's read it every year. Would you like that about you? This is Thomas' story. John 20, verse 25. The disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord! And he said to them, and you know these words, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger in the print of that nail, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. They were adamant, weren't they? They refused. But we smile at that. When we read it, we smile at that because we've read the reports already. We've seen these things and we know the truth. It's like knowing the plot of a story and, and those in the play don't know what's about to happen. And you do. And you sit there and say, oh, just wait, Thomas. Just wait till you see him. Wait, Peter, until you see him. And all these, these the minute Mary's eyes are opened up, she's talking to her. It's like we, we wait for that moment, don't we? We anticipate that and we say, oh, this is fun. We smile at it. Well, another reason we might smile at it is because, you know, I think we would have been a lot like them. Our response would have looked just like theirs, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, to be slow of heart, to be a little dense with spiritual things, that's possible. We could be very adamant about it because, after all, resurrections like this don't happen every day, do they? It's not commonplace. It's not even expected. And we could resist that kind of information if we were there. We could refuse to believe it. If we were there, matter of fact, there were groups that uh, were religious leaders in, uh, in the days of Christ and even into the early church. They were called Sadducees, and they refused to believe in a resurrection. Even well into the ministry of Paul, years and years later, some 30 years perhaps have gone by, and Paul's speaking to them, and they still did not believe in a resurrection. Even though one happened right in their town. That message had gone forth. But, you know, we're good students of the Word, right? And, and these people, they shouldn't have been surprised it was written, right? And we're better than that, aren't we? Was it not Jesus himself who told them 
over and over and over again that he would rise from the dead. Let me give you a handful of verses, just a few. If you go into the book of Mark, you go to chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark chapter 9, another scenario here, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he had been killed, he will rise three days later. Was he mistaken with the three? He kept saying, three, three, three. That should have stuck somewhere. In Mark chapter 10, you'll see this. It's just chapter after chapter after chapter. Mark 10, verse 34. Jesus said they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he would rise again. And in case you're saying, well, they must have got confused. You know, it was holidays and everybody was fixing meals and, you know, all those kind of things. But even in the upper room, 24 hours before he's crucified, he's talking to them and he says in John chapter 14, verse 19, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And then just a couple of chapters later, still in that same conversation, John 16 Verse 16, he says, A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And some of his disciples said to him, it said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. And he also said, Because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, What is this that he says, a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus, knowing they wished to question him, he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I said to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. He anticipated just in a few days that we're going to know the fulfillment of those words. I love those verses, don't you? We read them. Um, it, I think we need to have Easter more often. Once a year is just not enough for all the information that goes into all these stories. There's so much to cover. But my question was this. Should they have been surprised? Should they? I mean, it's interesting. You, you go to the gospel stories. You investigate the words of Jesus to prove that the disciples ought to have expected good news. They should have rushed as a whole. Sit outside the tomb on the last day saying, It's coming. It's coming. Just wait. They should have been there, I think, if they understood it. But here as Jesus is talking to those Emmaus disciples, He chose to limit His discussions to the Old Testament. He said, You foolish men, have you been slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken? And he goes back to Moses and with all the prophets and he explained himself. He didn't go to his own words. He went to what did Scripture say? What did Scripture say? Over and over and over again. Now, we're not going to go all the way back to Moses, all right? 
because you're thinking, but we have breakfast this morning. <laughs> and we could be here a long time if we start this job. So I'm not going to go all the way back to Moses. But I do recommend someday do that. Go and trace the resurrection from the Old Testament and walk your way through it. And you'll be amazed at what you see. But I just want to limit our talk to Psalm 22. The verse that I read to you just a few minutes ago. The verse I read, verse 22. Psalm 22, 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You say, okay. Okay, what's that all about? I've been setting this scene every time we've been in the book of Psalms. I said it. There's two levels to this. You start with the historical... That's what David recorded. This is his psalm. This is his experience. And these are his words. And no doubt, that's what it felt like to him when you read through the passage about uh, how he was having a very difficult time. He, he expected, if you read these words of Psalm 22 all, the way, 22 all the way through, you see David expected to die. He expected at any moment he was going to be caught. Now, we don't know if this was King Saul who was chasing him, because he doesn't tell us the background story, but there are two big episodes in his life when he was running for his life. And King Saul was chasing him for ten years. How would you like that? For ten years, David was being chased by King Saul. And he knew it wasn't just Saul, it was the entire army. And at one slip, and he was in trouble. There was one scene, and we won't go to all that, but there was one scene where I picture it this way. There's this giant mountain or cliff here, and David and his group is walking on this side of it, and right on the other side is the army. And they're about to come to the point together. And I think, boy, you, you see that in cartoons? You see that in, in in historical you know movies and stuff where they see you see the enemy on one side and you see the the one they're chasing on the other and you say oh they're coming together it's going to be trouble I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story but I tell you David's still alive at the end of it but you could go and you can go and find that story but David expected that at any moment any moment that was going to happen. Now, we don't know if it was that, but we do know that if Saul caught him, David's life was over. Another scene much later in his life was with his son Absalom. Absalom was taking over the kingdom. Absalom was intent on killing his father, David, and taking the kingdom. And David had to run for his life, and he crossed over the the valley, and he headed up into the wilderness because he knew it well. And he was hiding out from his own son. And again, it was a very close call that David was in danger, and he knew it. Now, we don't know which episode this psalm comes from. But as we read through this psalm, it's as if David is crying out, I don't expect to live through this. <laughs> Here's some of the examples. We, we, now, we always immediately launch them into the story of the crucifixion. But back off for a minute and just think of David surrounded by enemies and in trouble. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry for day, by day, and you do not answer. I cry by night. I have no rest. I'm just a worm, not a man. An approach of man and despised by the people. They sneer at me. They separate at the lips. They wag their head. They say, oh, you're, a, you're supposed to be a religious guy. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him if God really delights in you. God, You brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when I was with my mother. Upon You I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. So be not far from me, for trouble is near. Trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. The strong bulls of Ashton have encircled me. They open wide their mouth as a ravening and a roaring lion. I'm just poured out like water. My bones are all out of joint. My heart is like wax. I'm melted within me and my strength is dried up as a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Does it sound like he's got another good day coming? Oh my. The dogs have surrounded me. Band of evils have encompassed me. They've even pierced my hands and my feet. And they count my bones. And they look at me. They stare at me. They divide up my garments among them. My clothing, they cast lots. But you, Lord, you, be not far from me. You, my help, hasten to my assistance. Help! You can hear the words. Desperation. You start moving down closer to verse 22. Verse 20. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen. Answer me. Hear him cry? Was David expecting to be rescued? This is not good news. And then look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. How how could he tell of God's deliverance if there was none? How could he say, I will tell of your name to my brethren? How could he say in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you? David wrote about what might felt like desperation for him. This is his scene. But we're told clearly, folks, we see it very clearly, that David was speaking well beyond his years and well beyond his knowledge because these words of David might have been descriptive to him in a prophetic way, in a a symbolic way, in all these other things because they're very picturesque. But they perfectly matched and spoke of our Savior. And in particular, his crucifixion. These words are the words that Matthew would quote, or John would quote, and say, this is what Scripture said. They pierced my hands and my feet. 
This is what Scripture said. They divided my garments among them. This is what Scripture said. They kept bringing it up because it came from this passage. We know that we're speaking about Jesus Christ when we read these words. Because nobody else, even David, never had these fulfilled in his life. Over the years, like I said, I've been going to this passage for a communion service to speak of the death of Christ. So today, in verse 22, I speak of the resurrection. Why? Because no one, no one, speaking of their own resurrection, would speak of future activities. Why? Because resurrection, or crucifixion, had one purpose. And what was that? Death. And one's expectation? It's over. There's nothing beyond that. They don't anticipate coming back. They don't say, I'm going to be crucified. Then, I will. That doesn't follow in the simple scene of a crucifixion. The dogs have surrounded me, verse 16. Band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But folks, there was good news to follow. But you, Lord, be not far from me. You're my help. Hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. That's after a crucifixion. What does that suggest to you? There must be a resurrection. There has to be. If there's going to be any hope beyond this scene. What's very interesting is this word, I will tell. I will tell of your name to my brethren. I will tell. The, the the Hebrew verb system is called an imperfect verb. That sounds, well, that's no good. I only like perfect verbs, don't you? Well, the imperfect verb was the idea, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. A perfect verb has a stop to it. An imperfect verb is one that speaks of habitual things or continuous things or or customary things, things that just keep happening over and over and over again. And this is what he's saying. He doesn't say, once I'm going to talk about this. He says, I'm going to keep on talking about this. I'm going to keep on habitually talking about this. I'm going to make it my custom to talk about this. I'm not going to stop. I said, wow, is that a great phrase. Because that's the response. Death comes with its completeness, we say. But Jesus anticipated his return to his brethren. He anticipated that there were more actions to follow. He says, I'm going to be on the other side, and I'm going to talk about it. Guess what the disciples talked about, too? Read almost any one of their sermons. You've got a lot of them in the book of Acts. And just about every one, guess what the main point is? This Jesus you crucified, but God raised him from the dead. They kept bringing that up. That's the main point. Without that, what else is there? 
God raised him up, raised him up, raised him up. And you say, well, how do we know that Jesus really meant that? How do we know that Psalm 22, 22 was a reference to the resurrection? I want to show you something. Go to Hebrews chapter 2 for a minute. Hebrews 2. You're going to see this and say, wow, this is great. Hebrews 2, verse number 9. It says 9, 10, 11, and 12. But you've got to see a build. It's great. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 9. This is what the writer of Hebrews said. I'll give you a second. I hear Bible pages moving. Hebrews, you know where that's at, right? Don't go in the Old Testament. All right? It's in the New Testament. All right? Okay, Hebrews 2 died. But we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, you see it? Crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who suffer or sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For this reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. Guess what he just quoted? Psalm 22, 22. In reference to the resurrection in reference to the sanctification, in reference to the fact that we have a Father now, and we're all brothers in Christ. We stand before that throne even today because Jesus tasted death for us. And He rose again. And He rose again. Jesus expected to rise again. Our time is short, I know. But let me ask you this. If you take verse 22 here, as I've been reading it, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Let me ask you this. What do you tell other people about Jesus? You do talk about him, don't you? What do you tell them? I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. The passage says, All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. Does the resurrection story put you in awe? Do you stand there and say, Wow, this is the greatest thing. We've been building for this. We've got great news to tell. And then this verse stands in our lap here and says, What are you going to do with me? Let's take it as the verb tense. I will habitually talk about my resurrected Lord. It will become my custom to talk about my resurrected Lord. When you speak of Jesus, do you speak of Him as if He's dead or He's alive? That's the Savior we have. He's alive, is He not? Isn't that great news? Don't you love talking about great news? It's interesting. At the Christmas message, you remember? That was back in December. 
It's been a little while, I know. I like Christmas. I'll bring it up now. There was good news of great joy, wasn't there? What was that? A baby's born. Who was that baby? A Savior. What would that Savior do? Save us from our sins. He's identified a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Folks, if He's not Lord over death, He's not Lord at all. But He rose. Do you not see that? He is Lord. Isn't that great news? He he came to this earth as a Savior. Why would we be surprised that He fulfilled that by being our Savior? And dying on a cross. And rising again. I love these words that J.C. Ryle wrote years ago. I'm going to read it to you just in our closing thoughts this morning. We need not wonder at these words. The spiritual darkness which had covered the earth for 4,000 years were about to be rolled away. The way to pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open to all mankind. The head of Satan was about to be bruised. Liberty was about to be proclaimed to the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed that God could be just. And yet, for Christ's sake, justify the ungodly. Salvation was no longer to be seen through types and figures, but openly and face to face. The knowledge of God was no longer to be confined to the Jews, but be offered to the whole Gentile world. The day of heathenism was numbered. The first stone of God's kingdom was about to be set up. If this was not good tidings, there would never be good tidings that deserve the name. Yes. This is great news. Who are you going to tell? Who are you going to tell? The verse says, I will tell of these things to my brethren. You ready to share good news today? This morning, the simple good news is set before you. If you don't know who Jesus Christ is or what he did for you, let me make it clear. Jesus Christ came down to this earth for a purpose. He is God's Son. He's God's only begotten Son. And God sent him into this world that he would live a perfect life, yes, but that he would be condemned by unjust people, sinful people, condemned and crucified. And it wasn't because he was a criminal. It was because he was taking your sin and my sin upon himself. He was paying a price that we could never pay. For the wages of sin is death. And Jesus Christ paid those wages for you. Do you know that? He paid the price tag you owed and I owed when he died on that cross. And that wasn't the end of the story. Because if that was all there was, we'd still be wondering today if it worked. We'd say, "Uh, how, how do we know that God was satisfied? Jesus Christ rose again. Evidence to us that he has justified us in the sight of God. He was risen for our justification, Scripture says. That means we can be confident that we can stand before God's throne, forgiven of our sins because Jesus Christ paid them and we believe it. Do you? Do you believe He died for you? 
Like I said, it gets personal. It got personal for me one day when I realized he didn't just die, he died for me. And he didn't just rise, he rose for me too. And today I celebrate. I have great news to tell you folks. Have you caught on yet? This is great news. And I share it with you today because right now, right here, you can have Jesus Christ as your Savior too. You can believe that He died for you, He rose for you, and through belief in His name, you can have eternal life too. If you've never accepted Christ as Savior, would you do it today? Here's a pastor just pleading with you. All right? I'm just pleading with you. Please respond to the gospel message. It's the only thing that will ever save you. It's Jesus Christ. Don't count on anything else. No merits. Nothing you can do. You can come to church. You can go to Easter services for the rest of your life. You can give lots of money. You can do good things. You can live an upright life. You can try everything you want in the book. But it says that our righteousness is like a filthy rag in God's sight. It won't do it. Only Jesus Christ can save you. He is the way. He is the truth. And He is the life. And nobody, nobody, nobody comes to the Father but through Him. Do you know Him? That's the great news, folks. I had to tell you that. Now, if you know it, go tell somebody else. Tell it to your brethren. Tell it. And make it a habit. I've got to tell somebody. I've got to tell somebody. Heavenly Father, great news. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for a risen Savior. What joy that brings to us. What victory is ours through Jesus Christ. What a change it has made for us forever and ever because we know Jesus as our Savior. Lord, if there is somebody here this morning that needs Christ, draw them to Yourself. You're the only one who can do that miracle to change a life, to take that which is dead and make it alive again. And I just pray, Lord, that You might accomplish that today in somebody's life today. Somebody who hears these words, may they respond to the great news that Jesus Christ died and rose again for them. Thank you for what that means. As we celebrate today, we do it with hearts that are full. Oh, we want to rejoice in this. Oh, we want to proclaim your name. We want to praise you, Lord. Thank you for giving us cause for rejoicing today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.